Welcome to the Alexander Baptist Church podcast. My name's Craig Ashby, pastor at ABC, and if you're listening on Sunday the 5th of September, just want to say Happy Father's Day. Huge shout out to the dads, the stepdads, the foster dads, the granddads. Just want you to know that you are loved and appreciated, and if you've got a father figure in your life, I really encourage you to let them know that you are thinking of them today, that they are special to you. Hey, um, there was a recent survey which uh, identified that during this recent lockdown, a lot more New Zealanders have been watching a lot more TV. And I've watched a little bit extra, you know, particularly those athletes in the Paralympics. Haven't they been inspirational and absolutely amazing? But as I was flicking the channels the other day, I saw an advert for the Transformer ladder. Don't know if you've seen it or not, but it's this amazing ladder uh, which can do all these crazy things. And in the advert... There was a whole lot of free gifts that were getting thrown in. So not only did you get some extra legs with the ladder and you got a wall stabilizer and you got a shelf with the ladder, but you could get a spanner set and a drill set and an all-expenses-paid holiday to Australia. Well, not quite the last one, but certainly the presenter was putting out all these unlimited and unconditional promises on just how great this letter was and how amazing it was and how long it would last. And, you know, curiously, the presenter never said how much the letter actually cost. And I don't know about you, but we're probably pretty sceptical when it comes to words like unlimited and, and unconditional, especially if they come from the mouth of a salesperson. You know, there's that old saying, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And I think that's true in our culture. People are always trying to sell something. And if they're giving it away, then we expect a catch. There's got to be some sort of condition. And we're really skeptical about that. But I wonder if we overlay that same skepticism on our attitudes to religion, particularly Christianity. If you've been around church long enough, you might have heard talk of God's unlimited grace or his unconditional love and maybe you're skeptical about that you might think you know that's fine for the perfect people who have gone to church all their lives and know all the Sunday school stories but you know my track record's pretty sketchy there's patches of my life that are not so great and and maybe you're convinced that God's unlimited grace and his unconditional love there's got to be a catch there's got to be some sort of condition there that has to be met Well, if that's what you're thinking, I'm really stoked that you've tuned in because for the last few weeks, we've been unpacking the life and work of Jesus Christ. And from the moment he first stepped onto the pages of human history, Jesus caused a huge commotion. Everywhere he went, everything that he said, everything that he did was intended to bring something new. In fact, Jesus brought something new to the world, but he also came to do something new for the world. And as we've discovered in the last few weeks, Jesus offers a new purpose and a new perspective to our lives, which I think is really important, especially in these unsettling times. Well, you know, you could actually argue that the ancient world in the first century was perhaps even more unsettled than the times that we live in today. You know, for the Jewish people back then, they were subject to oppressive foreign rule by the Roman Empire, and they deeply resented that foreign occupation. The Jewish people longed for a liberator, a a messiah, someone who would come and overthrow the Romans and bring about political and social freedom. But you know, despite that oppression by the Romans, the Jewish people were still able to maintain their identity. And they did this particularly through celebrating various festivals and feasts. 
And so we're going to pick up our story uh, against the backdrop of one of these festivals known as the Festival of the Passover. Now, Passover is a really big deal in Jewish culture. It's an annual celebration where Jewish families they get together, they have a special meal, and they remember, uh, certainly in the first century, that for 1,500 years before, God rescued, his, uh, God rescued their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. You know, but by the time they were celebrating the Passover in the first century, it was a bittersweet celebration because the Jewish homeland was an occupied territory. And so while the Jews celebrated God's rescue in the past, many felt abandoned by God in the present. That was until Jesus burst onto the scene and people began to wonder if he was the longed for liberator. If maybe, if maybe this Passover, God was going to work in the present and Jesus was going to liberate these people from the Roman oppressors. And so as you track through the biographies of Jesus, you'll notice that all of his biographers write about one particular event that was highly significant. They call it the triumphant entry. And so at this Passover in the first century, uh, thousands of pilgrims uh, are just flooding into the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus enters along with many of these pilgrims and, and the crowds just go wild. <clears throat> they welcome him into the city. There's cheering and shouting and praising because they expect political freedom to come about as a result. And so this makes the authorities really, really nervous. They're unsure what's going to happen. Jesus has had a bit of a track record of disrupting the status quo. And so the authorities begin to make plans to capture and secretly kill Jesus. But they want to keep it on the down low. They're afraid that if they do anything that's too noticeable, that'll cause a riot during the middle of this Passover festival. So there's this real tension going on. There's the planning and plotting by the authorities. And then on the other hand, you've got the people, the crowds cheering Jesus. They're hoping that he's going to live up to their political aspirations. So it's really full on. There's a lot happening. And, and according to the, the text, Jesus seeks out a quiet place in the city of Jerusalem, a place where he won't be interrupted, a place where he won't get arrested, where he can celebrate the Passover meal with his close followers and draw some threads together for them. So we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 22. And we're going to start reading at verse 14, just to set the scene. Luke chapter 22, verse 14, and this is what we read. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Verse 19, he, that's Jesus, took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, if you've been around church, you might be familiar with this practice. It's, it's called various names, communion, the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, which literally means thanksgiving. But for those first century Jews gathered in that room, it was known as Passover, the meal that symbolized God's liberative activity for the Jewish people in ancient times. So if that was the meaning for them, why would Jesus pick up this piece of bread and say that it represented his body, when it, when it had nothing to do with him? And then why would Jesus say, do this, do this Passover meal in remembrance of him? I mean, we look back now as Christians in the 21st century and don't really see that as a big deal. But for Jewish followers in the first century, this was highly offensive. Since they'd been children, 
They'd been celebrating the Passover to remember God delivered their ancestors out of Egypt. Now Jesus turns up and he's missing all of their history. He's missing with the memories. He's making Passover all about him. It's it's hugely offensive. The only way I could kind of illustrate it for you is imagine if this December uh, I turn up to Alexander Baptist Church and one Sunday morning I say, hey everybody, we're going to have a change of plans. Like normally at Christmas we celebrate the birth of Jesus, but this year, this December, we're going to celebrate my birthday. And so every Sunday we're going to sing some songs that are written about me. We're going to call them Craig Carols, and then we're going to have speakers they're going to talk about how great I am. And then at nighttime on December the 24th, we're going to wrap it all together with a Craig Eve service. And there's going to be candles and there's going to be lights and there's going to be cake. And, and everyone's going to get together and celebrate just how great I am. Now, if that happened, you would probably leave Alexander Baptist Church, right? In fact, if that ever happens, I advise you to leave. You have my permission in advance because clearly something has gone very, very wrong. But my point is this, that Jesus is doing something here far more disruptive than that. So offensive. I I cannot believe that his first followers didn't leave the room. I mean, they're probably confused. They're looking at each other. They're whispering, you know, Jesus is great and all that. But maybe that triumphant entry's kind of gone to his head. I mean, this is going too far. But it seems that Jesus was not done yet. Luke chapter 22, verse 20. After supper, he, Jesus, took another cup of wine and said, this cup is. Now, right at that moment, his followers were sort of nodding their heads going, yep, we know what this cup represents, Jesus. This cup represents the blood that was shed by our ancestors' animals when they escaped Egypt. And according to Exodus chapter 12, God instructed the Jewish people to identify their houses by putting blood from that animal on the doorposts so the angel of death would pass over their families. And so as their followers, uh, as Jewish people, Jewish culture, they knew that was the story. They'd been taught that since they were children. In fact, that was the narrative of the whole nation for the past 1,500 years. So surely, surely Jesus would stick to the script, right? But look what he says. This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. I mean, this is hugely disruptive. No longer is the Passover a reminder of God's past promises. But Jesus is saying this is going to fulfill a new covenant. Now, if you're not sure what a covenant is, a covenant is simply an agreement. It's a promise. And in this instance, it's a new pledge that God is going to make with his people. Now, now while it was a new covenant, it was not unexpected. 600 years before the ancient prophet Jeremiah had predicted that God would establish a new covenant with his people. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 31, God makes it clear that his new covenant with his people is going to be engraved on their hearts. He's going to engrave his instructions on their hearts. This is a contrast. The original covenant God made with the Jewish people back in Egypt, the instructions were carved with stone. But this new arrangement, this new covenant Jesus is making is more internal. It's a covenant of conscience. And this just blows the minds of Jesus' followers. In that room, at that moment, he turned everything that they knew upside down. 
But ironically, Jesus' followers then begin to argue about who is the greatest among them. And they totally miss the point that Jesus is trying to make. He's ushering in this new covenant, and they didn't even ask what type of covenant it was going to be. You see, in ancient times, there were sort of three basic types of covenants. So let me just kind of track through those with you. The first one was known as a bilateral parity covenant. Now, just to reassure you, there's not going to be a test at the end of this, okay? You can relax, but I just think it's helpful for us to understand the different types of covenants. So this bilateral parity covenant, it was essentially an agreement between two equal parties. Probably the most modern day comparison would be a business contract, right? So one party brings some capital, another party brings assets, and they form an agreement, you know, they sign on the dotted line, and that's kind of the agreement that they're making. It's, it's an agreement between two equals. The second type of covenant in ancient times was a bilateral suzerainty covenant. So a suzerain is, is a king or a leader, someone who's very powerful. And in this type of covenant, the king would dictate the terms to the less powerful party, often known as the vassal. And the less powerful party, the vassal, they had no choice but to accept. So the most probably simple comparison for us today would be a curfew. You know, you've got a teenager, they say, they ask if they could borrow the car, and as the parent, as the adult, you lay down the rules. Okay, it's my car, here are my keys, you'll be home by 10pm, repeat after me, you'll be home by 10pm. And if you're not home by 10pm, you'll never be allowed to drive the car again, and you'll have to wash the dishes for a month, and, and so on and so on. And so the vassal, the teenager, says, yes dad, I will obey your rules, I have no input, I simply have to obey. You, get, you kind of get the picture, right? A bilateral suzerainty com com covenant is an agreement between two unequal parties. One is more powerful than the other. And God's relationship with the people of Israel was historically based on that bilateral suzerain covenant. It was like a curfew. God laid out his rules and his conditions that he expected from his people. And if the people followed the commands, they would receive the blessings. They'd be allowed to drive the car. But if they didn't, they would be punished. And perhaps you've read some of those conditions. They're recorded in the books of Exodus, in the books of Leviticus, in the book of Deuteronomy. And perhaps if you've read them, you've just sort of scratched your head and thought, why? Why is there so much detail? Well, it's essentially because God was establishing a nation. He wanted the Jewish people to stand out from the other cultures to represent his holiness and justice in ancient times. But sadly, the history of the Jewish nation was that times they were faithful and times they were unfaithful. It was a really up and down, a really on and off relationship. Which brings us to the third type of covenant in ancient times. The third agreement was known as a promissory covenant or, or a patron covenant. And basically in this agreement, one party binds themselves to another party for the benefit of the other. There is an unconditional promise made to benefit the other party. Now, the most, I guess, simple comparison for us would be a, a primary school crush, okay? Maybe you're, you know, remember the time when you're 11 years old and you wrote the note to your crush, I will love you forever, even though your family's moving to Australia, I will still love you forever. You know, it was, I don't know whether you did that or not, but it was a promise of unwavering love. 
And that's what the promissory covenant is. It's a promise that is unconditional. It is totally one-sided. The patron, the most powerful party, basically says, I will fulfill my con conditions even if you don't. Now, if you're curious about how these ancient covenants were agreed to, um, let me just kind of fill you in on the picture here. Now, it is a little bit gory, so if you're squeamish, perhaps you might like to look away. But just to acknowledge the seriousness of the covenants, something had to die. Usually an animal, or potentially if uh, the covenant parties were wealthy, or it was a very significant agreement, then there was multiple animals, but normally an animal was cut down the middle. And then the two halves of the animal was laid out. And each party that was making the covenant would walk through the two halves of the dead animal. I know it sounds a bit weird, but that's what they did. But you know, that imagery still lingers in our modern culture. So when we say things like, we're going to cut a deal, that's a reference to this ancient practice, which literally was cutting a covenant. And essentially, the reason that it happened like this was because the parties were saying, you know, may this happen to me as it's happened to this animal if I break the terms of the covenant. It was literally a pledge on their lives. The covenant was so serious that it was it was signed and signed and sealed in blood. It was a blood covenant. And so in this promissory covenant, one person is making the promise. They're binding themselves to the other for the benefit of the other. And fulfilling the terms falls all on that one person making the covenant. So with this, um, with this agreement, only one party would walk through between the dead animal, would walk through the halves of the two, two animal, or between the halves of the animal, because they're the one who has the part to play. They're the one who is making the promise. Now, with all that background, can you start to see the threads that Jesus is drawing together at that Passover meal? Jesus is establishing a new covenant between God and people, and it's a promissory covenant where God is binding himself to people in a really unconditional way. And as his representative of God, Jesus is going to ratify this covenant by pouring out his blood. He's got the part to play. He's got the role, the responsibilities. He's going to give himself for the benefit of the others. And so this new covenant, this new promise that God would give is actually open to anyone who would trust in him or anyone who wants to experience life as it was meant to be. And this life that Jesus offers through this new covenant is a life of freedom from our sin and our shame. It is a life of unlimited grace and unconditional love through God's goodness. And you know, what's fascinating is it's not confined to an ethnic or a cultural group. There is no long list of terms and conditions that have to be fulfilled and met. This invitation is open to anyone, anyone who is willing to confess their sins and freely choose to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Now for those first followers sitting in that room, experiencing that Passover and seeing all this new stuff unfold before their eyes, it was so much, so much of it didn't make sense. But as they tracked through the following days, after that Passover meal, as they watched Jesus die on the cross, as they saw three days later, they witnessed him come back to life. They saw this new covenant fall into place. They realized that God was truly doing something new and that God invites all of us to experience a life through the new covenant. 
And that's where it falls for us, friends. I invite you that if you are sick of being weighed down from your past, if you're sick of being worried about your future, if you're sick of being unsettled in the present, if you want to get in on the life that Jesus offers, if you want to be a beneficial party to this new covenant, then you need to simply confess your sins and acknowledge your faith in Jesus. Jesus himself put it so simply in John chapter 3, verse 16. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And maybe you just simply need to believe. You know, that is the first step for you to experience the unconditional love of God that you are seeking. Maybe you already believe. And I encourage you that if, if that's you, then um, consider the significance of this new covenant. You know, normally if you join with us in meeting in person at ABC, you'll know that we share communion pretty regularly, normally most fortnights. But perhaps you could share that symbolic meal with the people that you are in your bubble today. Why don't you grab your family or your flatmates or whoever's around, get some bread or some crackers, get some juice or some wine or some coke, and just be reminded and refreshed by this new covenant. Remember the benefits of having Jesus in your life. I'm sure that that would be a really powerful time for you to share together. So if you do uh, choose to share communion in your bubble uh, today or in the coming days, then I'd welcome to put a photo or a comment or something on the Alexander Baptist Church Facebook page. Just let us know what you're up to. It'd be really encouraging. And also, perhaps keep an eye on your email inbox later in the week. There'll be some updates coming out uh, just about where the alert levels are at uh, once the government's reviewed the whole national lockdown situation. But look, I really hope that has been encouraging, perhaps interesting, informative for you as you reflect on the significance, this new covenant that Jesus offers us, a new promise, a new way of being. Hey, have a great day and God bless you heaps. Thanks.